book about um, how many people in scripture started well, you know, and, uh, in their later days. And then this is another one, The Joys of Successful Aging by George Sweeting. He was the president of Moody Bible Institute when I attended. It's a great book. A lot of humor, a lot of practical stuff. So I have these here if you want to check the titles afterwards. Now they're I gave them, I bought them as gifts for my mom in years past and made her bring them back. Um, you can Kindle for sure the George Sweeting because I have it on my Kindles. You can look at it afterwards, okay? Okay, they'll order Karen's books. All right. Well, let's get started. Uh, in our study today, we're going to see the great usefulness of one particular senior and how he impacted the life of David. And I know in our culture, that's not really often the perspective. There was a reporter who was interviewing three wrinkled-faced codgers on a park bench. And he asked the first one, what do you do for amusement, and how old are you? And he said, well, I play checkers, and I'm 98. And then to the same question to the other man, he said, well, I play chess, and I'm 95. And then the third replied, well, I drink alcohol every day, smoke 10 cigars, stay up all night. Your age, the reporter asked. 29. <laughs> okay. Anyway, so last week we looked at the ultimate good news, bad news uh, event in David's life. The violent rebellion had come to an end and it was indeed great news, but the instigator of the rebellion, Absalom, is dead. The death of a child is always heart-wrenching no matter how terrible that child may have treated the parent. And added to the loss of his son was the reality that David had never really resolved the conflicts. It was never dealt with and combined with what could have been, what should have been, and his own failures of the past brought him to a place of such despair. <clears throat> his focus in this crisis was really completely on himself and his loss and his own failures. So at this point, the king was still far from the capital, uh, and the capital was sitting there empty, leaderless, a really dangerous situation for somebody else in a rebellion to seize uh, power at that moment. There was no prophet who came to speak to David, <clears throat> so Joab is the one who steps up to the plate. I'm sure Joab is getting an earful from the army. <clears throat> Joab reproves David in verses 1 through 8. And then it came, then it was told Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourns for Absalom. The victory that day was turned to mourning for all the people. But the people heard it said that day, The king is grieved for his son. So the people went by stealth into the city that day, as people who are humiliated steal away when they flee in battle. The king cried out with a loud voice, O oh, Absalom, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. So what should have been a day of great celebration that this coup had been squashed and a day of triumph for David's army was instead turned into a day of great sorrow and grief. The soldiers who had risked their very lives for David began to leave Mahaniam or not even know what to do as if they lost the war. So David had no word of gratitude for his army's courage in the fight, no appreciation or reward for their dedication as his soldier. It was as if they had been defeated and David even refuses to go and speak to them. Instead, he is simply crying out with a loud voice for his lost son, wanting to be left alone. There was no thought as to how difficult this must have been for his own army, 
who were forced to kill their fellow countrymen and maybe some of their own kinsmen because of this awful civil war. They had expected there to be joy in the fact that they had victory, but instead they are made to feel shame. How often grief causes us to think only about ourselves and only about our own pain and not even thinking about the pain that other people are going through. In verse 5, Job confronts David as he reminds him these soldiers risked their lives for him, for David's wives, for David's children. Job tells him how he has shamed his own men. He says, by loving those who hate you and by hating those who love you. For you have shown today that princes and servants are nothing to you. For I know this day that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead, then you would be pleased. What a, what a rebuke. He boldly confronts David regarding his behavior and actions and, and inactions. And David was losing really credibility as the king because he's testing to the limits the loyalty of the army who followed him faithfully. What little morale was left in the army needed to be uplifted by David himself. Joab couldn't cheer them on anymore. No doubt David was angry with Joab for the death of his son, but he listens to Joab's rebuke, and it shook him into action, and Joab told David to go speak comfort to those who had served him. Joab also seems to possibly be making some type of hidden veiled threat that uh, he would personally see to it that the army defected unless David pulled it together and did what was right. David saw the wisdom of Joab's words and finally went to the city gate to address his soldiers. Now David finds himself in a very tricky situation that would require a great deal of diplomatic skill, which we'll see some of that uh, in these verses. As he has now listened to David, he's doing what he said. But you have to wonder what David's really thinking about Joab. Joab had been his ever-loyal military leader. Joab had committed murder in obeying David's command to do so. Joab's the one who attempted to have Absalom and David reconcile. He's the one who orchestrated his return to Jerusalem. It would appear that David, though, is now thinking Joab has crossed a line in disobeying his orders. And no doubt David is thinking at this point of what actions he's going to take. That brings us to lots of division between the people. We have it in this next section, 9 to 14, as well as the very last section of this chapter. Those who had followed Absalom had now all fled for home. In verse 9 we read that all the people were quarreling throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines. But now... He has fled out of the land from Absalom. However, Absalom, whom we anointed over us, has died in battle. Now then, why are you silent about bringing the king back? So there's a lot of support and rethinking going on. This is a time of confusion as people are divided as to their leader. But there's a general consensus, and many of the people simply want David back on the throne in Jerusalem. These people have been duped by Absalom, bringing great harm to them as a nation. Sadly, David's own tribe of Judah had been divided in their loyalty to David. So David makes a diplomatic move and sends his priestly allies in Jerusalem to go and encourage support for his own tribe. David reminds Judah, you're my brothers, you're my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring the king back? Then David makes another political move to have Amasa, Absalom's former commander of the army in the coup, 
replace his own Joab. This was likely done as a, a way to try to secure allegiance and olive branch to reach out to the divided army and rebel army and try to bring them in as one. And no doubt discipline to Joab as well for killing his son Absalom. We read in verse 14 that David turned the hearts of all the men of Judah as one man so that they sent word to the king saying, return you and all your servants. Now this next section I really have come to love because it highlights three particular individuals and these three and David's interaction with them teach us so much. David meets a delegation on his return who is there hurrying to meet David with a heart racing of fear, none other than the rock-throwing, cursing Shimei. And last time David saw this man was in the time of greatest despair in David's life as he's running for his life from his son trying to kill him. And Shimei at that point, as you recall, was so vicious in his attack of David. And it would appear that this man made sure he was arriving not all alone, but with like a thousand people around him. Uh, for some moral support, or at least maybe David would think twice about what he was going to do with all these people. Zeb was there as well, and uh, who had been kind to David on the way out of the city. But there also seems to be intense competition as to which group proves their loyalty by arriving first. This is a big deal. Shimei obviously feared for his life, so he hoped that he would find safety in numbers as he rushed to the water to offer the king his help. He petitions David, let my Lord, let not my Lord consider me guilty, nor remember what your servant did wrong on the day when my Lord the king came out of Jerusalem so that the king would take it to heart. For your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come today, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down, to go down to meet my Lord the king. With so many of other Benjamites watching, who Shimei was part of, he is begging forgiveness of David in front of everybody. And with the death of David's own son fresh in his mind, David is determined that he's not going to bring more bloodshed on this return trip to Jerusalem. We are not told David's true feelings about this evil man Shimei, only that he determined he was not going to punish him with death. And of course, his ever-ready military commander, Joab's brother Abishai, would like to take this opportunity to silence this traitor once and for all. And after all, why would you trust a man like this who could be a future threat, you know, to the royal family? So uh, Abishai maybe wanting to kill this man was just too close to home of Joab wanting to kill Absalom. And, and David just responds, what have I to do with you, O sons of Zeruiah, that you should this day be an adversary to me? Should any man be put to death in Israel today? Or do I not know that I am king over Israel today? The king said to Shimei, you shall not die. Thus the king swore to him. So it appears David chose to forgive this man. Now before David's death, on his deathbed, he talks to Solomon, and he asks Solomon to deal with this man, not because of his personal offense to David. I believe David forgave Shimei personally, but he wanted his son Solomon to deal as a judicial judge because this man had violently sinned against God and God's word. So David trusted Solomon to have wisdom to test Shimei to see if he really had repented and deal with that in the future. So David sought justice 
not as personal revenge come back. I really had it in for you this whole time, I believe, but as um, wanting God's justice and God's glory vindicated. Next, we have Mephibosheth. When David laid his eyes on Mephibosheth, he saw a man whose outward appearance is one of deliberate neglect as a clear sign of grief over David's suffering and sorrow and having to believe. And we read in verse 24 that Mephibosheth said, uh, he had neither cared for his feet, nor trimmed his mustache, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came home in peace. I suspect you could have got a whiff of him a little ways out. <laughs> Anyways, this man certainly seemed genuine in his grief. And obviously, at this moment, David is suddenly presented with, you know, the other side of the Ziva story from on the way out of town. Mephibosheth then goes on to explain to David that he had been deceived by Ziba. Apparently, Mephibosheth had intended to ride to David on a donkey on the way out for the running for their lives, but Ziba took advantage of his disability and rode out ahead of this man, giving a complete slanderous report and lie about him. Mephibosheth then refers to the fact that under any other king, he would have been put to death. But David had been like an angel to him. David had extended kindness. He'd welcomed him into his family, had him sit at his dinner table with him. Mephibosheth seems to have a genuine gratitude and does not feel that he's in a position that he's going to make any kind of demand of David. Give me back my land you gave Ziba. That's not his heart at all. It is a bit surprising to see David's response to Mephibosheth. Why do you still speak of your affairs? I've decided you and Ziba shall divide the land. End of story. I'm done. <clears throat> David has apparently enough on his plate to deal with. He is grieving his son. He's now trying to reestablish his throne and unite the kingdom. And this conflict was simply not a priority. We don't know if David's thought is that Mephibosheth is not being completely honest or innocent of everything, or if David is simply wanting to repay Ziba for all the supplies he brought when he uh, met him on the road on the way out, or if David simply did not want to sit there in the middle of the situation and judge a case that had been so badly misrepresented to him. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> in the scheme of things, Ziba and Mephibosheth and their property issue was not uh, a big, important issue to be dealt with. This wasn't the time or the place to investigate all these conflicts and, and accusations. But it is at this point that Mephibosheth says to David that, you know what, I don't even care about the land. Ziba can have the land. That's not what this is about. It certainly makes Mephibosheth appear to be motivated not by any kind of personal gain. His greater desire was to remain in the presence of the king. And as far as he, could, he was concerned, Ziba could have the land. You know what? Ama amazingly, he let it go. I'm letting my proper inheritance go. I'm letting my reputation go that this man utterly maligned and was vicious. And I just want to be with you, David. I just want to still be in that right place. <clears throat> what a great example. If you were in this situation, would you let it go? Maybe you've been in this situation. Maybe it's been with uh, a will in your family and someone took everything unjustly or lied about you falsely representing you, just like Ziba did. And now Ziba had all the land that had ultimately, that had just not that long ago been restored to Mephibosheth. It was his father and grandfather's land after all. 
Seems Zebo's all about advancing himself and increasing his own wealth and power. He didn't care he slandered Mephibosheth and lied about him. He didn't care if Mephibosheth would have died as a result. And yet this man, Mephibosheth, did not try to get even with Ziba. He didn't even demand anything to be done to punish Ziba or get anything back, uh, what had been taken from him. So what was most important to Mephibosheth, as I said, was that he be in fellowship with the king. He knew he didn't deserve those possessions and living in the royal palace in the first place. So he forgave Ziba, who deserved nothing either. What a great example of Jesus' command in Matthew 6:14. If you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Another truth we see from the situation that is what I mentioned when we studied chapter 16, the danger of hasty decisions without hearing both sides of the story. How often have we listened to a friend tell about their horrible husband or in-law or whoever, and you think, oh, that's unbelievable. And you don't know the other side of the story. And how many of you raising children have a child come running to you screaming, and it's especially dramatic if there's blood or an egg or something else like that, and you hear that this child, their sibling, has done something terrible to you. You know, Proverbs 18:17 says, the first one to plead his case seems right until his neighbor comes and examines him. <laughs> so it's always right to put off making a discipline decision or a punishment decision until you have both sides of the story. And, and so many times you simply have to do what James tells us to do in 1.5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally without reproach, and it will be given to him. As parents, you can be student of your children and learn to recognize their eye motions or their body language when they're not telling the truth. <laughs> In our study of chapter 19, uh, we saw the story of three individuals, or uh, today rather, in this study, we see three individuals that David addressed upon his return to Jerusalem. Shimei, who he chose to pardon. Mephibosheth, who had the chance to expose the lie of Ziba and be reinstated in his devotion for David. And now comes this third person highlighted, David's faithful elderly aged friend. His name is Barzillai the Gileadite, and this man had been devoted to helping David in a time of need. He had used his own personal resources and material goods to help David and his household and his army out while they stayed in Mahanaim. Despite his age, this elderly man makes this journey all the way back to Jerusalem just to show moral support for David. David is so deeply grateful to this man, he wants him to return and stay with him in Jerusalem so he can look after him and, and show his gratitude by kindness and caring for him. There are so many in scripture, which is what made me think of Karen Davis's book here, that begin their lives and have wonderful service for the Lord. And then, I don't know, they do something really stupid. And that's how they're remembered, how poorly they ended instead of finishing their life well. We aren't told about Barzilla's earlier years, but we know here at the end of his life, he is a man who finished well as an aged senior citizen. He saw a need, and he went to great lengths to meet that need and to be a friend to a man much younger than himself. And David greatly benefited from the friendship and from the kindness of this older man. I think this speaks volumes to the old and to the young alike. 
Just because you are elderly doesn't mean you are finished ministering to others of all different ages. And just because you are young doesn't mean that all your friends should be your age and have your situation. This loyal friend of David makes quite a statement about what it's like to be ancient. He's like, this is like, this is what I'm working with, okay? I am now 80 years old. Can I distinguish between good and bad? My judgment's off some of the time. Um, or can your servant taste what I drink? Face buds aren't working. Or can I hear any more the voice of singing men and women? You're going to have a concert. I'm not even going to hear it. Um, why then should your servant be an added burden to my Lord the King? You know what? He's completely honest about the challenges he dealt with as an 80-year-old. Life's tough. This is what I'm dealing with, okay? Changes in sight and hearing and taste and in judgment all make life really extra challenging for the ages. He thought moving away from his own hometown would just be a burden for David and, and for himself alike because that's where he was familiar and that's where he wanted to finish out his life at home. Now, despite all of the physical limitations of this man that he just explained to us, he still faithfully served and ministered to David and countless others. You know what? He didn't stay in his home. He didn't stay in a room in his home or in a chair in his home. He was involved in another man who was in a crisis. He had all the physical limitations that come with being 80, but he still cared and he did all that he could to help. He took this journey with David as a show of support, and David loved this man and he wanted to express gratitude to him. Barzilla offered Chimham to go and be with David and be the recipient of David's kindness. We don't know who Chimhan is, obviously somebody close to Barzilla, a son, a grandson, whatever. So that in doing that to Chimhan, you're doing it for me. And David agreed. I wonder if that's the kind of friend that you are to others. Do you share your resources to help someone in need? Are you there when they're in a crisis? Do you have friends who are a different age category than you? There is so much wisdom to be learned from the aged, and the young can bring so much encouragement and physical health to the elderly. I remind you of the command in Titus 2, which we, most of us know by heart. Older women are to be reverent in their behavior and many other things. And then he goes on to say, teaching what is good, uh, that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their hus own husbands, so the word of God won't be dishonored or maligned. So you really, you know, if you look at that verse and you do the opposite of any of those things, you realize you malign God and his word. When you don't love your husband properly and you don't love your children as you should and train them because you love them, when you're not sensible, when you're not pure in your thought life, when you neglect your home responsibility, when you're not subject to your own husband, you are maligning the word of God. And those who have walked that road before you, you know what? They have some things to offer you to help in the ordeal. So let's learn from this individual Barzillai that you are never too old to serve the Lord and to help others. And let's learn from David to be one who's grateful for help and one who cultivates friendships with those older than themselves. There is so much to learn from each other. You can be active, and you know what? You can finish well in your service for Christ, even with all of those uh, limitations. You can be wise to seek out friendships of those who've been around the block about a thousand more times than you. So that brings us to the end of this chapter, and we have more discontent. Why is that? 
Um, now the king went on to Gilgal, and Shimham went on with him, and all the people of Judah, and half the people of Israel crossed over with the king. And behold, all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why had our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household and all David's men uh, with him over the Jordan? It's just like you can hear him. <laughs> and uh, as David traveled from the Jordan to Gilgal on his way to Jerusalem, he had the full support of Judah and about half of the people of Israel throwing support. So now shows up the northern tribes, and they're very upset because they weren't there for this ceremonial return uh, to escort the king back to Jerusalem. And they came to the king, and it appears the dialogue here is not really with David. It's between these tribal groups. Mm -hmm. The northern tribe was very upset that those of the tribe of Judah had claimed David as their own to the exclusion of the other tribes. In verse 42, those from the tribe of Judah say, well, David's our own flesh and blood. And those from the northern tribes say, well, listen, we're the majority. We're ten tribes here, and we're the support of David, so we carry a lot more weight than just your one tribe. They claim they were the first to want to restore David as his king in the first place, while his own tribe dragged their feet. Everybody wants to be first to welcome David back. And division and strife, you know, it's just lying under the surface all the time. This division will again show itself in full force in another generation when Solomon dies and the kingdom is split in two for the rest of the history. This chapter, though, closes with the men of Israel telling the men of Judah, we have ten parts in the king, therefore we also have more claim on David than you. Why then did you treat us with contempt? Was it not our advice to bring the king back, our king back? Yet the words of the men of Judah were harsher than the words of the men of Israel. And that's how it ends. Not everybody being so nice and having a good time. These harsh words and discontent is really going to set the stage for a brief revolt, which we will see next week with a man named Sheba. Well, you can see why the groundwork's already laid for that to happen. But the truth is, David is God's choice to be king of Israel, and God's man doing God's will will make it possible for David to get the kingdom back and restored and united. David realized, you know what, he couldn't show favoritism to Judah without there being disaster. And as a leader, he had to be concerned for all of the citizens of his kingdom. Trouble was already brewing. Uh, uh, trying to be in a right relationship. Oops, all right. Sorry. Lost my page. There we go. Anyways, we're reminded in this closing section of the fickleness of people. It's just like a kid. I had it first. Or that's not fair. And it's that same kind of mentality. Um, how challenging for David. He has a broken heart. He's trying to simply regain his kingdom. And nothing's going too smoothly. And I thought, how often that is the case. You, you may have victory over a major crisis in a moment in your life, but that doesn't mean everything's all smooth now. And now it's all going to be okay. People that you live with and work with are self-willed. And they want their own way, how they want it, and when they want it. And that presents for each of us the spiritual challenge of living with self-willed people. And yet these are the same people that are used by God to show us our own sin, our own shortcomings, our own self-will and rebellion, and to develop in us Christ-like attitudes. That's why they're, you know, in your life. So my application, first thing, there's so many good things here. In the midst of times of tremendous grief, don't forget about others 
who are around you who may be hurting too. We are to walk through the valley of shadows of death, and when our loved one passes through to the other side, we have to walk through that grief too. We're not supposed to set up a tent and live the rest of our lives in the valley. Be aware of others around you who are experiencing grief. You're not the only one. Secondly, we must forgive those who cause us harm and hurt us. The Lord reminds us that vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, as Paul says in Romans, quoting the Lord. And our responsibility is to forgive as we have been forgiven by God. That means unconditionally, completely. David forgave Shimei. Mephibosheth forgave Ziba. And both had been slandered and maligned and absolutely unfairly mistreated. God was the one qualified to deal with those who had sinned against them. He knows people's hearts, and he will take care of them. Thirdly, learn from Mephibosheth what, it, what really matters in this life. Not getting money, not getting land, but rather being in a right relationship with people. That has to be our top priority. Mephibosheth shows us humility, forgiveness, contentment, and the truth that people are more important than things and money and land. Being in a right relationship was most important. Fourth, you too can finish well like Barzilla, and you can use whatever time, whatever energy, whatever resources you have to serve other people in need. You can still find joy and purpose in life, even though everything that you do is 10 times harder to do. One has to cultivate a sense of humor as you get older, to avoid being a grumpy, annoying old person. Um, old age, as one person said, is when you get out of the shower and you're glad the mirrors are fogged up. <laughs> one other author put it this way about aging. The seven ages of man are spills, drills, thrills, bills, ills, pills, and then <laughs> there you go. Well, you know, if you're 20-something or 30-something, like in a month, you'll be 60-something. <laughs> I'm serious. I mean, that's how quick it doesn't really go. My fifth uh, application, gratitude and friendship is important to express to those that you know. Don't limit yourself to only being with people who you are, are your own age. You somewhat short yourself, shortchange yourself both ways, the old and the young. Get out there and help someone who may be declining physically because you have something to offer them and they have prayer support and friendship and other ways to support you. And then six, recognize that people are always going to be fickle. This is due to the fact that they are self-willed and focused on what they want for themselves in every area of life. There is absolutely nothing new under the sun. Happened at the beginning, happened here, happened in the new life. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you that this chapter, which just seems like a historical lesson in many ways, is filled with truth. Lord, I pray for each of us to take away in our own hearts the truth of being forgiven, forgiving to those who malign or hurt or steal from us or are just unkind. May we learn from Mephibosheth and from David to forgive. And may we learn... Lord, to cultivate friendships with others who are maybe not the same economic or social or age class as us. Lord, help us to develop and have a thought 
to serve others. And as those who may be discouraged with the physical limitations that aging has brought to them, Lord, I pray that you would uplift their spirits to see that we can finish well and we can make a difference in the lives of others until the moment we draw our last breath. In Jesus' name.